0: I'm so happy to be with you this morning. Um, I love getting a chance to drive down to Biloxi. Uh, I'm sure everyone that comes here to visit and preach tells you how beautiful your church is and how fun it is to be here. And I'm certainly not an exception to that. My wife was very disappointed not to be able to come. We have a 10-week-old baby, uh, and so he was, um, he's not really keen on traveling early on Sunday mornings yet. So we, uh, She is at home with him, but she sends her best uh, and wishes that she could be here. My name is Ben Shaw. I'm the campus minister for Reform University Fellowship. We are uh, the arm uh, of the local church to the college campus of this denomination. And so, in fact, in many ways, we are an arm of this church uh, through the presbytery to to the campus there. And I certainly appreciate your prayers and support. Many of you uh, get letters from us and and extend kind words and prayers and encouragement um, for us. And, And I really appreciate that. This morning, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1. We're studying Romans in, in, in RUF weekly this semester. We have a group of college students that get together uh, every Thursday night, uh, a pretty, pretty large group. Um, and, and you would be encouraged to know that, that, that we're studying the Bible and we're singing um, Bible-centered songs. And, and we are, uh, you, you would be encouraged to know that college students uh, are, are being drawn to the Lord by His Holy Spirit and attracted to him uh, through his word. And it's a very special, uh, very special thing to be a part of. But we're studying Romans this semester. Uh, I'm going to be reading uh, Romans chapter 1, 1 through 17. Um, this is the introduction to, to Romans. Romans is a letter that uh, Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Uh, it was a group of believers that he had never met before. But of whom uh, he had heard many good things. Uh, we can be encouraged. We can take heart this morning because Paul, in fact, uh, is writing to a church uh, that he had never met. Uh, and, and I assume that, uh, I can safely assume that we here at First Pres. Biloxi are, are a church that Paul uh, never personally met. So, what he knows the church in Rome to be struggling with, we can know uh, that he, uh, it is valid and, and, and meaningful for us too. So, let's now look in God's Word, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith this is God's word let me pray before we consider it this morning father our hearts are hard our ears are shut and our eyes are blind to what you would have us know were it not for Jesus and the Holy Spirit opening our eyes unclogging our ears softening our hearts I pray God that you would do that this morning that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever seen, uh, this question is going to bear a lot more weight with the college students to whom I first asked it, but have you ever seen a pager, a, a beeper pager? Many of us in this room have seen them, right? They're these little devices that have a phone number attached to them, right? And, and you know maybe 10 15 years ago you would get someone would call your pager and it would buzz you and then you would know to go check your voicemail it would basically receive voicemails for you i saw a gentleman just last summer taking a pager into a cell phone store and asking if they could service it because he was giving him problems and the look on the lady's face in there was one of some she was somewhat puzzled because she said you know i'll do my best but i don't know if we have someone that fixes pagers anymore. And he handed it to her and he thanked her. And for my college students to hear that, they would think, what good is it for a device that only receives voicemails? In fact, some of my students would say, what good is a voicemail? Students don't ever even check their own voicemail. They get texts and things like that. Why do I mention that? Well, what we need to know, what we need to be reminded of as Christians is that that There are many things in our lives that are like that. Things like pagers. Things like high school letter jackets. Things that fascinate us and captivate us for a little while, but eventually end up in boxes in our attics and in our garages. Things that become sort of so humdrum and boring or useless that they can be discarded very easily when something more suitable to our needs comes around, something more efficient. These are the type of things that sort of become cumbersome to us, and then eventually they'll be discarded. This semester, we're going to look at Paul's letter in in, in RUF. We're going to look at Paul's letter to the Romans. And this to, this morning, we're going to introduce. I want to introduce what we introduced to our college students, because Christianity has become such in our culture, especially in the su- southern culture, that it's become so common, so humdrum, so commonplace to us. That my fear is that many of us, just like many of my college students, will be tempted to think of it as something like a beeper pager. They say, that that really served its purpose for a while in my life, but it doesn't anymore. And so we sort of discard it, we cast it out. The gospel sort of seems like a novelty to us. That happens in Christianity. That happens in the church. Paul knows it happens in the church. That's why he's talking to this church in Rome. He doesn't know these people yet. And yet he's telling them, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's warning them. It's a a theme statement for the whole book. He wants them to know that the gospel cannot become boring and commonplace to you. And the truth of the matter is, if we're engaging, if we're believing, if if we're delighting in the true gospel, it will never become commonplace to us. And that's what he wants to get at this morning. That's what I want to get at this morning from what Paul has told us. This gospel that Paul talks about that he tells us in verse 16 and 17 that he's not ashamed of, this is the kind of gospel that affects our hearts. It's the kind that takes us... that took Paul from a prominent place in in, in Judaism, a prominent place in the community of Pharisees, this this rising star in in the world of the Pharisees, a place... Where he could have identified himself to others. He, he said, as to the law, I was blameless. As to the law, I was perfect. That's what, he said of him, that's what he could have said of himself before he met Jesus. But this gospel took him from a place where he said, as to the law, I see myself as perfect. It took him from there to a place where he calls himself the foremost of sinners. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst sinner I know. And the interesting thing is that in the gospel, he wants to call all of us to that place with him. From a place where he says, as to the law, I'm perfect. Now I'm the chief of sinners and I want you to come there with me. Paul wants to keep people from simply not caring about Christianity anymore. This, this sort of type of external Christianity that cannot and will not bear up as newer things come into our lives. Christianity, it's not like patriotism, right? The patriotism that makes you interested in, like, the Olympics when they come around every four years. Or patriotism that sort of makes you get excited about World Cup soccer when really probably none of us are soccer fans the rest of the time of our lives. But the World Cup comes around and USA is in the World Cup and we're excited about it. Or the type of patriotism that sort of ramps up during the 4th of July. Or, or, or when, like we are now, we're at war. Christianity is not like that. It's not something that, that will help you only feel good about yourselves, helps you pick you up when you're down, helps you choose who you want to date or who you want to marry, it helps you choose who you want your children to hang out with. If that's the only thing that Christianity does for us, it's all external. And eventually we'll cast it off because it doesn't affect our hearts anymore. Christianity is not symbolic. It's not exclusively symbolic. A few years ago, I walked into a friend of mine's house, and as I was walking into his, uh, walking up his driveway, I slipped, and I almost did like the complete splits in in his yard. And I, and I, uh, you know, I thought I pulled every muscle in my legs. And I looked down, and what would I find on the driveway there underneath my foot, but a banana peel. And as many times as we've seen it on cartoons or in comic books or on commercials, I bet very few of us in this room have ever actually slipped on a banana peel. And yet we know in our minds that banana peels mean you could slip and fall. And it happened to me. I don't want Christianity to become that way for us. Something that is only symbolic. We think of the cross and Christ and church and scripture and we think, oh, that means salvation and all this stuff. But we never experience it in such a way that... Challenges our hearts and changes our hearts. The theme statement of the book of Romans is right here in verses 16 and 17. The theme statement of the book reminds us that embracing the gospel means embracing something of which you will be tempted to be ashamed Embracing the gospel, the true gospel, means embracing something of which you will be tempted to be ashamed. Why does Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Our inclination is, is sort of to apply this verse to, to our public witness. Right? right? What do people out there, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, therefore I'm going to go and, and, and be be happy to tell people that I go to church and happy to tell people that I love the Lord and all these things. It applies to our public witness. Therefore, I'm not going to use certain types of language at work. And I'm going to make sure that I'm in church on Sundays and Wednesdays and and other times. If this is all our Christianity does for us, it's external things. If our Christianity, if we read this verse about not being ashamed of the gospel and we think it's only about what we do out here, it won't affect us. It won't changes and eventually it will be displaced by things that seem more interesting the big idea of this passage the big idea of the book of romans is that embracing the true gospel means embracing something that you will be temp- of which you will be tempted to be ashamed and there's three reasons for that and i'll read them uh, we'll go through those this morning i think they're all right here in the text and the first reason is this the gospel the true gospel begins with it is good news that begins with bad news i'm sure you've heard before in church somewhere that the word gospel literally means good news it's the announcement of a victory of something good that has happened back way back in ancient times it, before it became sort of a bible word it just meant the gospel meant good news something happened somewhere it's an announcement the gospel for us Means identifying that the power we find, in, uh, identifying not the power that we find in ourselves, but the power that is revealed to us by God for our salvation. Identifying your, yourself with the gospel message means identifying yourself as someone who needs saving, and that's, that sounds like bad news for us, right? Identifying ourselves as someone in need. When I was about twelve years old, I was sort of a late bloomer. Uh, I was plenty big, but I was not strong at all, and I was at a summer camp, um, and they took the 12- and 13-year-olds from the this, from this summer camp where I, where I was a kid. Um, at the end of camp, they would take the 12- the and 13-year-olds over to the, to the teenager camp, right? And we would get to go spend one day there, sort of experience all the wonderful things that we were going to get to do next summer when we came back to camp. And so the plan for us, is at me as a young, very young 12-year-old, was to go with this group over to camp and we were going to do their high ropes course, which was this sort of intense, um, 30 feet up in the air, cables and lines and harnesses and all this great stuff that we didn't have at the younger kids' camp. So we were going to do the high ropes course and then that night we were going to go to a square dance with all the teenagers. And we just, obviously we were all nervous and excited and here I was, a 12-year-old, and... I would have to diagram it for you to help you understand, but the end of the ropes course had a cargo net and a series of barrels that you had to sort of climb across and then climb through. And I was not anywhere close to strong enough to do that, especially at the end of the day. And I'm here to tell you, I got halfway across the cargo net, I thought I was going to fall. Luckily I was harnessed in, I didn't think I would, could make it, I made it, and then I got to the barrels and... I was about three barrels from the end, and and I fell out of the barrel. And I'm hanging there by a wire, and and, and I'm completely worthless. I'm I'm so tired I can't move. And luckily, the director of my camp, the younger kid's camp, he he saw me up there. and, And he knew that I was in a bad spot. And right about that time, all the teenagers started walking underneath on their way to the square dance. And so there I am hanging, completely motionless, so tired I can't move. The, the teenagers are walking underneath this and they're yelling to me, you can do it, keep going, keep going, you can do it, pull yourself up. And it was only making it worse. And so then, not only am I embarrassed and scared and terrified, uh, but I can't move. And lo and behold, the director of the camp comes scaling up this metal apparatus, no cables, no harnesses. He saw that not only was I scared... Um, but that I was getting more and more embarrassed, and, and he wanted to save me from that. He climbed out there without a harness, pulled me up with his bare hands, helped me to the end of the course, got down. Uh, I went with all my friends to the square dance. And what do you think happened at the square dance? The teenagers walked up to me and said, Hey, weren't you the kid that fell out of the, uh, of the barrels on the ropes course? And what did I say? Um, I'm thinking in my mind, okay, I was 30 feet up there. They might not actually recognize me. And I was like, no, I I don't think... I think there was a few people that may have fallen out. I don't think that... That probably wasn't me that you saw. Well, Well, why did I say that? Because that morning, that afternoon, and that night, I did not want to be identified as the chubby... 12-year-old who fell out of the barrels and couldn't get himself back in. I did not want to be identified that morning as someone who needed saving. I was ashamed to identify myself that way. The good news of the gospel begins with the fact that it is the power of God for salvation. It's right here in the text. The power in salvation comes from God and to believe that you must be willing to relinquish all claims of your own power and your own salvation. You know what? That's that's where Satan and the world and the flesh are going to tempt you or try to convince you that you are being shamed. And it feels like shame, but it's not. See, the beauty of the gospel is that it begins with our relinquishing all powers to our own, uh, relinquishing all of our own power, and saying, I am someone in need of saving. Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's one of the reasons he says that is because the gospel begins with bad news for you. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25 says a lot about this. I'll read a few little expert excerpts. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. It goes on to say, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Later it says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to Gentiles. The gospel, we're tempted to be ashamed of the gospel because it begins with us admitting that we need saving. The second reason that we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel is that it is for everyone. Everyone. The gospel is offered to everyone. How do I, where do we see that in the passage? Well, it says the Jew first. The people whom God had chosen in the Old Testament, the people to whom He had made promises, He had given them the law and the prophets, the people with whom He had been exceedingly patient and forbearing, the people who repeatedly showed themselves incapable of getting it right, but the people who thought that they would know who and what the Messiah would be like when He came. God's special possession, the people who had the ceremonies, they had the rules, they had the sacrifices, they had the scripture. You know what they needed for salvation? They needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They needed saving. It says, and also to the Greek, you know who else needed salvation from Jesus? The Gentiles. The Gentiles were the others The other nations, the uncircumcised, the people who had no expectation of a Messiah, they had no prophetic anticipation of the Anointed One. Do you know what those people needed? The same gospel. They needed Jesus. The gospel is for every kind of person. And because our hearts are sinful and because our hearts are prideful, there are people for whom we don't think the gospel is available. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that in your heart? If any of you all know the story of Facebook, the, the, the massive Internet phenomenon that has totally revolutionized our whole world, if you know the story of Facebook or if you, if you saw the movie Social Network, which I don't recommend broadly to all audiences, but if you saw the movie, you'll know that Mark Zuckerberg, this guy who started Facebook, his fear for Facebook in its early stages was this. He thought if you make it available to everyone, people won't want it anymore. If you make it available to everyone, people won't want it anymore. Because it's a status symbol, right? He started by letting people at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Stanford in these little pocket of pockets of sort of elite academia. He, he only wanted them to, to have it because he wanted them to feel like only they could have it. Because when something gets offered to everyone... A lot of times we don't want it anymore. We're ashamed of it. See, Mark Zuckerberg brilliantly understood that we don't like things that are available to everyone. We like to think that we, we sort of made the cut, right? And so when the gospel comes in, what Paul tells us and when Jesus offers the gospel, when we realize that Scripture offers salvation to all different types of people, we're tempted to be ashamed of that. The real gospel says that it is for all those who believe, not to those who hold a certain moral standard, not to those who have a certain socioeconomic class, not a certain IQ, not a certain race. The, go- the gospel is for all types of people. See, because real Christianity is not about hearing... I'm sorry, real Christianity is about hearing and believing. It's about hearing and believing gospel, good news. It's about hearing an announcement of good news. It's not advice and instructions on how to make yourself right. The gospel is an announcement of good news. And that's what Paul wants to remind us of so that it it is something that continues to capture our heart. So it doesn't become like everything else. If you're struggling with this idea, that's okay. Because it probably means that it's working on you. Paul is talking to a church that he had never met. And he has to tell him, he has to remind him, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed for the Jew and for the Gentile. Take heart this morning if you're tempted to be ashamed of the gospel at times because it probably means that you're a real person engaging the real gospel. The last reason that the gospel is something that that sort of tempts us to be ashamed is that it involves an outside righteousness. It involves an outside righteousness. And, And let me try and explain it this way. Uh, When I was in high school, I was the quarterback of a very poor-to-average football team, uh, and I was a pitcher on a very poor-to-average baseball team. This is not me patting myself on the back for my athletic achievements, I assure you. Uh, But when I was in high school, my little high school in North Louisiana won this thing, uh, this award uh, called, I I think it was either the Piccadilly Cup or the Piggly Wiggly Cup. It was something like that, some funny name. Uh, that, that everyone took very seriously because it meant that your school had the best athletic department in its, in its class, right, in its division. Uh, and so uh, being the pitcher on the baseball team that made the playoffs and being the uh, quarterback on the football team that made the playoffs, they asked me to go receive this award uh, on behalf of our school down front at this big assembly. And so I went down front and, of course, I felt... Like it made total sense. I'm the quarterback and the pitcher and I should certainly go down there and receive this award. And so I received it and thanked them and it did the whole deal. Um, And as I was leaving the assembly, someone pointed out to me, hey, you know, the football team and the baseball team didn't make it far enough in the playoffs to to sort of earn any points for this award at all. And I'm embarrassed to say now and should have been embarrassed to say then, I, I sort of argued with them. I said, well... I'm sure we did something. I'm sure it meant something. And they said, no, it doesn't. And I didn't believe them, and so then, uh, to make it even worse, somebody actually showed me in black and white a document that talked about the rules and the points and how this award was given, and it basically confirmed their uh, news to me that I had nothing to do with that award. In fact, the girls' cross-country team the girls' softball team and the boys' track team had accumulated all the points on their own. And so here I was, having just received an award and stood in front of the whole school and accepted something that I had nothing to do with. And I was so embarrassed. I could, I was, I, not only was I embarrassed, I was mad at whoever had asked me to do that. I couldn't believe that I had gone down there and made such a fool of myself. I had stood there and accepted something that I had no part in earning. I did not want to receive something that I did not earn in any way, and it made me feel foolish. And the world tells us that it's shameful and embarrassing to receive something that you didn't earn. But here's the problem that's exactly what the gospel is. The gospel tells us you received something that Jesus earned on your behalf, and that is hard for me to hear. And it's hard for you to hear. And, and and Paul tells us he's not ashamed of the gospel because when we are embracing and engaging and believing the true gospel, that's what it means. Martin Luther identified this book of Romans, this letter to the Romans. We're about to celebrate the anniversary of, of his posting the ninety five thesis in a few weeks, or actually in a week, I guess. Martin Luther identifies this book, Romans, and these verses as pivotal in his understanding of Scripture and of God. And in fact, it became a pivot which in many ways the whole world turned on. These are important verses. See, Martin Luther, who was a dutiful and a hard-working monk, could not shake the reality that he could not please God on his own. And that the righteousness of God could justly squash him whenever it wanted that he, 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 did not, he could not be near to God without God's righteousness squashing him. No matter how hard he worked, no matter how hard he repented, no matter how hard he beat himself up, even literally beat himself up, he couldn't be close to God and the righteousness of God. But in his study of Romans, in these chapters and these verses, Luther realized that the good news... And the righteousness of God, good news and righteousness of God, those don't go together. They don't go together for sinners like us unless, of course, the righteousness of God is not merely a condemning righteousness, but a gift righteousness. A righteousness that's given to us. And that's what what these verses are talking about. These verses in this book help Martin Luther see the beauty and the good news of the gospel which is received and applied by faith. The righteousness of God, this passage tells us, is revealed. It comes to us. It's not generated in us. And the whole of Scripture opened up for Luther as he read those words. I bet some of us have had a similar experience where all of a sudden we realize that the Gospel, that Scripture is about God giving us His righteousness and receiving us because of what Christ did and not because of what we do. And all of a sudden, the whole, it's like the whole book opens up to us. Righteousness, right standing with God which requires perfection is not dependent on your performance but it's dependent on the performance of Jesus. And that the death that sin produces in your life cannot be dealt with by self-hatred and willpower but only by being washed in the blood of Christ and having Him stand in your place. The exchange of His life For yours. The gospel is hard for us sometimes because it means we receive something that we didn't earn. It turns us on our heads. And Paul says it's revealed from faith for faith. And that's been explained a lot of different ways by a lot of different sort of smart Bible scholars. But it basically means this. It begins and ends with faith. The faith that saves you, when Christ draws you to Himself and you you come to terms with the fact that He uh, purchases your salvation with His blood, it begins there, but it also continues there. It begins and ends with faith. The best news that you can hear today is that Jesus fixes you. Not that you fix yourself. We're tempted to believe that at the beginning that Jesus fixes us and then later on we sort of learn how to fix ourselves. That's not true. It begins and ends with faith. It's from faith for faith. The only righteousness that can save us is the one that comes from outside of us. In fact, it's the one that comes from heaven above. Why does Paul tell us that he's not ashamed of the gospel? the gospel that's for the Jews and the Greeks, the gospel that begins and ends with faith, the gospel that requires a righteousness that's from outside of yourself that you had no part in. He tells us that if you, because if you're believing the true gospel, you're always going to have moments when you're tempted to be ashamed of it. That means you're believing the true gospel. If it seems too good to be true, That's the true gospel. That can truly capture your imagination. That's something that you're never going to want to throw out. This type of message might produce a lot of questions for some of you in your hearts, and that is totally okay. In fact, it's great. I hope that it will cause you to stay engaged in searching for what it means to have right standing with God, for you and God to be on good terms. It can only happen through Jesus. That's what it means to have questions and to think about what that means is what it means to be being transformed by the grace of God through the gospel. And and this is a scary place that the gospel takes us, but it is a very good place. It's good news for even the depths of your heart, the dark places that you don't want to let go of. The gospel doesn't tell you that you need to start wearing a bigger cross around your neck. It doesn't tell you that you need to start posting more Bible verses on your Facebook status. It doesn't tell you that you need to start putting more bumper stickers on your car, which all of those are wonderful things. The gospel tells you that Jesus paid for your life. The gospel tells you that a man exchanged his life, a man who was also fully God, exchanged his life for yours, rose again from the dead that you could have life, and it begins and ends with faith. The invitation for you this morning and every day is to put your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this gospel which seems too good to be true is true. I pray that we might receive it uh, by faith and that it might change our hearts. God only you can do that by your Holy Spirit and I pray that you would do that not only for me this morning but for each one of us in here that it might transform our lives and in doing so transform our community and our world because of the gospel and because of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.